0: Today on Crossroads and Culture, what does the Bible say regarding the issues of sexuality and gender? And how do we, specifically as followers of Christ, counter the tactics and the barrage of attacks that Satan is using against us in order to distort God's gifts of sexuality and gender, pervert our thinking, and literally destroy our lives? I'm going to address that today on Crossroads and Culture. Guys, welcome back to another episode of Crosswords and Culture. I know it's been a minute since I have done an episode on this podcast, but hopefully that's going to change going forward, where I'll get back to having an episode on this podcast each week. So, but today we're going to be talking about the issue of sexuality and gender. You know, I, I believe most people would agree, if not everyone, that uh, if we're culturally aware and being intellectually honest, that we live in an overly sexualized culture regardless if you're listening to music on Spotify or Apple Music or even listening to it on the radio, or if you're on your mobile device, surfing the web, uh, on your social media apps, and there are plenty of them, uh, or you're watching TV, you're standing in the line at the supermarket, or if you're just breathing, there's a multitude of ways in which we take in things that we'd be better off not seeing, not reading, or listening to. Because of this, uh, we easily become susceptible to the lies and the deception of the enemy when it, when it comes to sexuality. Satan is always seeking to take what God has called good and pervert it into a destructively cheap imitation. And that's what he's done with sexuality and gender. I mean, it is all over the news. We hear it being talked about in the workplace, in culture. And we, and we know that as believers, based upon Scripture, and we'll look at this later, that the gift of sexuality and, and gender— They're gifts that God has given us, and Satan is doing everything he can to pervert that, to distort it, uh, so that we begin to buy into a cheap imitation that is destructive, as opposed to embracing the good gifts of God um, and how he designed sexuality and and gender. So today, what I want to deal with is this issue that is such a hot topic, and not just what you may be thinking about regarding maybe maybe same-sex relationships or, or gender identity, gender issues, but we're going to be looking at the widely accepted cultural worldview of casual sex, um, the widespread accessibility of pornography, and not just among men, although that's the larger demographic that c- consumes pornography, is addicted to it. Um, there are studies that are showing that a growing number of women are finding themselves becoming addicted to pornography as well. But also, we're going to look at what does it mean for couples choosing to live together as opposed to getting married, um, to, the, to the normalization of same-sex relationships and and the fluidity of gender identity. With all of these, the enemy has unleashed a barrage of attacks on God's created order and His design for gender and sexuality, and we're seeing lives destroyed In our world being shattered as a result of this. So, so as I begin this podcast, there there are a couple things I I believe that we need to have some understanding on. And and here's the first thing: that what I'm about to share with you comes straight from the scriptures, um, which I believe to be the authority by which we live and upon which our beliefs are grounded as followers of Christ. I believe that's true for us as believers. But also for those who don't profess to believe in God or even believe in the Bible to be true. And here's why. Because it is the standard to which we're all accountable. We'll all be judged by God's standard, His Word, His holiness. So, so that's the first thing I think that I want you to know is that what I'm talking about today comes from the Scripture, straight from Scripture. The second thing is this, that when it comes to issues of sexuality, such as heterosexual promiscuity or same-sex relationships— cohabitation, which you know is living together outside of marriage, which that's become a very popular thing in our culture, um, as well as sin in general. So gluttony, cheating, um, lying, gossiping, slander, I mean, all the things that we know that go against God's ways, uh, that are rebellious to Him, they're all sin, and all are an offense to a holy God. So because that all of us are sinners, having sinned against God, the Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, that means every single one of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we've missed the mark. We have not attained to that standard because we can't. We're, we have been born into sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, the beginning of that verse says, For as by the one man's disobedience, and that one man that Paul's referring to in the book of Romans is Adam's disobedience, the many, and you and I are the many, we're all the many, the many were made sinners. So it was through Adam's disobedience and his sin that every single one of us are born into sin and we're made sinners. So we're all broken because of sin. And because there are no acceptable sins, all of us are in need of God's forgiveness that he's extended to us through Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that more than likely, I'm going to receive some, um, some feedback from this, criticism because of the sensitive Controversial and, and emotionally charged nature of these issues. Um, for some of you who are listening, you, you what I will say, uh, even though biblically true, and I pray is grace filled will not be enough. That perhaps I should just read passages of scripture that speak about sexual sins and and leave it at that. And there'll be some who, uh, even though I I want to seek uh, to call, I want to call us as the people of God to be loving, compassionate, and speak biblical truth and love. Um, some will see this as not being loving enough because because I did not, because of a high view of Scripture, affirm specifically same-sex relationships as a lifestyle that is Christ-honoring, or really any of these relationships that are outside the the design and order of God. And, and I'm okay with criticism because I, I, I'm willing to take the risk of you not liking or loving what I say for the sake of loving you like Jesus does and, and pointing you to the truth that is found in in God's Word, and the truth that's found in Jesus. So I want to be faithful to the Word of God. And I want to, I hope, lead us in some way um, to engage this culture issue that is not only prevalent in our society, but even affects many of us, all of us, actually. Because we're all broken in our sexuality in some way, shape, or form at some point in our life. Um, Maybe in your own personal struggle, or maybe with friends of yours, or people that you work with, or, or a family member. And just to be transparent, uh, the issue of sexuality and gender—this is something that that has directly affected our family as well. So I, I don't want you to think I'm speaking from some position or 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 perspective that uh, I'm looking down because I'm not. Uh, I, I've been I, I, I've been affected by this. Our family's been affected by this, and so I want you to know that that I'm speaking not from a lack of understanding or a lack of empathy. Um, as well this is an issue that the church cannot refuse to address so for those pastors who are listening i want to encourage you to address this head on especially when it's in a day when it's not popular to talk about and there there is a lot of backlash as a result of this many people would say what you're talking about is hate speech and and yet it's not because we're talking about the god's the biblical ethic regarding sexuality and and gender, we can't turn our heads from this as, as though it's going to go away, like like an ostrich that puts its head in the sand. As as ch- the church, we should be leading the way and what and what it means to find hope in Christ and who has come to rescue us, right? All of us broken people from our sin. I mean, we should speak the, of the grace that He gives, so that we might live in such a way that reveals that Jesus is more than sufficient to reconcile us to God. And that satisfying joy, all satisfying joy, is found in pursuing righteousness and not living in sin. Now, we, we, we've got to be careful um, in allowing our feelings to reshape truth. We can't let our feelings reshape truth. Because when we do that, it can lead us to exhibit a false sense of compassion, especially when truth strikes hard against what's become culturally tolerant and acceptable and even normative. The enemy is, is a master at disguising tolerance Um, as loving compassion. That's why it's imperative, I believe, for us as followers of Jesus, for those of you who know Christ um, specifically, that we guard our heart by knowing the truth of God's word and that we walk in his righteousness. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he strongly encouraged them to put on the armor of Christ so as not to be overcome by the the schemes of the evil one. Um, And the reason why is because there was so much uh, immorality that existed in the city of Ephesus, that their culture was not much different than what our culture is like right now. The Ephesus was was one of the five most prominent cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, just to kind of give you some understanding of where Ephesus would have been. But it was, a, it was a city that had a temple there um, that was dedicated to the goddess Diana, or it was also known as the Temple of Artemis. And it was one of the, the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. So this was a prominent temple. And a lot of pagan worship was there, worshiping false gods, obviously. There was a lot of temple pro- prostitution that was taking place. Trafficking was going on. Gambling was taking place. Uh, the occult was was prominent there a lot of black uh, arts black magic and so Paul understanding this was wanting to tell the believers there that because the enemy's coming against them it is imperative that they put on the armor of God and so one of the pieces he begins with really the first piece he begins with is uh, the centerpiece of the armor which is the belt of truth so not man's opinion but God's truth but Paul will go on to say that as followers of Christ we should put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now it's interesting about this breastplate because as as you understand kind of military or warfare gear or armor that soldiers would wear Um, we know that today the men and women in our military, the the gear that they have is much, much different than what we had back in World War II. It's advanced. Technology has advanced. Same was true for Roman soldiers. There was a time where there was a a 7-inch by 7-inch square uh, metal or iron um, block that was placed over the heart of the Roman soldier. It was known as the pectorale. Uh, But as it advanced, it went from just this 7-by-7-inch Um, square piece of metal or iron to actually a breastplate of righteousness where they tied on this this armor and it was attached by leather straps around them. And it guarded their heart and it guarded all their internal organs as well to protect them from, obviously, uh, swords or spears that might be thrown at them. And so Paul's telling believers that it is it is of utmost importance that we put on the breastplate of righteousness that it is the righteousness of Christ that we put on that's what he says in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 6 listen to what paul writes stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness so it's not our righteousness that we put on but the righteousness of Christ when we seek to live uh, in our own righteousness, or live according to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, we're opening our hearts to the destructive lies of the enemy. So so it's a, so it's we must know the truth and, and walk in his righteousness so as to guard our hearts from the flaming darts of the evil one. That's what Paul talked about in verse 16 of chapter 6, is that there are these flaming darts of the evil one that he's throwing at us, and he knows exactly where your heart is. He knows exactly the things that are going to penetrate your heart in your mind. And so he's throwing those darts at you. He's looking for unguarded hearts. And the heart, it, it is so necessary for us to guard our heart because all of the things that would lead us to rebellion come from the heart. That's what Jesus was saying. He was actually, Jesus was teaching by um, in a region um, by the Sea of Galilee. In uh, scripture records this, that some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they heard that that Jesus was breaking the tradition of the elders. Not that he was breaking the law, because Jesus never broke the law. He was perfect in that. He fulfilled the law. Uh, but some of these religious leaders heard that he was breaking the traditions of the elders, and so they came to check Jesus out because they wanted to catch him um, doing something that they might bring charges against him, which ultimately they did. And we know that as a result of these trumped-up charges that Jesus was crucified— we also know too that it was all part of the Father's plan. It was part of His. It was it was the Father's will that Jesus would be crucified on the cross for our sins, that we might have life through His death and resurrection. So, so they come to check Jesus out, and and yet Jesus is more concerned with their hearts than He was with their traditions. And so He responded to them that they were really good at honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Now I could stop right there, and that that's a sermon in of itself. That how many times do we go? To church or we 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 seek to worship God, but we we do a great job of quoting scripture or singing songs to God and and we 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 honor God with our lips, but yet our hearts are engaged in something else that is not honoring to God or obedient to God, you know, obedience to God. It's just our hearts are in a place of rebellion. So sometimes we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from us. Well, God is concerned about our hearts. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 15 verse 18 he said, "But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. That's in Matthew chapter 15 verse 18. Now, the word defile in the, in the Greek language, it literally means to make morally or, or ritually uh, impure. And so, so, so listen to what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 15. He says, "For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. So that, which it's why, that's why it's imperative that we guard our hearts by putting on the breastplate of righteousness because the enemy is always seeking to attack our hearts with lies that are toxic and fatal. Now, for us who profess Jesus um, as Savior and who hold God's Word as truth, as the truth, here's what we can know. Here's what we can hold on as true especially in a culture that is so confused um, about God's design and God's created order. We can know that God brings clarity to confusion. Now, there is much confusion that exists, not only in our culture, but even in the church when it comes to sexuality. This isn't just a societal thing. This This is happening in the body of Christ as well. Now, for some of you who are listening, you may think, well, I'm not confused about this at all. I mean, I know exactly what I believe. And yet there's some who, as you're listening to this, you, you really aren't sure what's true. Maybe, maybe you didn't grow up going to church. Maybe you didn't grow up hearing this. Maybe you didn't grow up reading the Bible or even having the Bible read or you hearing what the Bible had to say. So maybe you're not sure what's true or, or what to believe. And, and, and partly, again, because without knowing the words of God or reading the words of God, it's impossible to have the knowledge of truth regarding God and His ways. And because the issues related to sexuality and sexual sin are rarely dealt with today in the church, it's necessary for us to talk about this. Now, here's the great thing: um, that God brings clarity um, to confusion, and He's going to speak truth to us. But but truth is not always easy to accept, but it always brings clarity. So so you know, when somebody speaks truth to you, it, it may not it may not be easy for you to accept. It, it may be hard to hear. But truth always brings clarity. Now, Satan is a master at causing chaos. As a matter of fact, he, he's the one who brings about chaos. And that's what sin is in our life, is it creates chaos in our life. But the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world, into the midst of the chaos, so that he might bring order to our chaos. And so right now, if if there's a lot of... Craziness going in your heart, and that there's sin that exists in your life. I I know this is true because it's been true of anyone who has fallen into sin, and that's all of us. Is that there's chaos in your world right now, in your mind, in your heart? There's an unsettledness. But the great news of the gospel is that Jesus, when Jesus steps into the chaos, He always brings peace. He brings order. So as we as we go further in this issue of sexuality and gender. I want to answer this question that we started with in the very beginning. What does God's word say about sexuality and gender? Well, there's basically four things I'm going to share with you. And again, we're talking about all issues of sexuality. Um, So it's not just about same-sex relations or gender identity. We're talking about all aspects of sexuality. So there's four things I'm going to share with you. It comes straight from Scripture. Here's the first thing, is that God's created order and design regarding sexuality and gender is very good. God's design is very good. As a matter of fact, it says it right in his word in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 26 and following. Scripture says this, then God said, let us Make man or mankind. Now, the word us was referring to the Trinity, obviously. In the Hebrew language, the word for God that we see in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God in the Hebrew language is the word Elohim. And Elohim is not singular, it's plural. And so now we jump to verse 26, and God's word says, Then God said, Let us. So it gives clarity to who God is that it's speaking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity was. Have always existed from eternity past, have always been, and so God is speaking of the Trinity. Let us make mankind. So that word "man" in the Hebrew in this in this in this scripture verse is referring to mankind. So that's all of us. Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created him, and then He gives two different words here that doesn't speak generally of mankind, but it specifically says male. And female. So, listen to what it says again. In the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. So, right there, God makes it very clear regarding gender. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good, it was very good. And so, what God's word is saying about His created order and His design is that it's very good. So sexuality, because he tells them to be fruitful and multiply the earth, he's speaking of reproduction. And that happens only within the relationship of a husband and wife, a male and female. So he speaks not only of sexuality, but he speaks very clearly of specific genders, male and female. And he says of his created order and his design, and it's very good. So, so what we can take from Scripture from the very beginning, how God lays the foundation, there are four aspects of this I, I, I want to see. Okay, So in God's created order uh, regarding sexuality and gender, that's very good. What's very good and what is, his, what is this design or what is this created order for sexuality and gender? Well, there are four, four aspects of that. Here's the first one, is that God's created design of gender is male and female. It's very specific and it's very clear. Again, God's word brings clarity to confusion. Now I know some will say, "Well, well, what about intersex? Uh, those who are born with, um, um genitalia that that of uh, both male and female organs." Well, here's here's what we can know to be true: that because of the fall of man, because of sin entering into the world. There has been disorder. We live in a broken world, and there are things that happen. Sickness happens, disease happens, death happens as a result of this, because of the result of sin. And there are rare occasions medically where chromosomal disorders may occur, uh, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. It's also known as CAH, um, or intersex, uh, the the male and female organs. It 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 happens on rare occasions. the reports are, the studies are, it's about one in 15,000 live births, which if you're looking at the percentage of this, that is 0.00006%. So it's four zeros before six, 0.00006% of live births um, experience congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And, and so it happens, but it's very, very, very rare. And so I'm, I'm not talking about the medical side of this. I'm talking about the confusion that happens when people say they experience gender dysphoria. And I'm not saying that's not a real feeling, but again, we need to let the truth be the guardrails to our feelings. What does God's word say about this? And so understanding that God's created design and uh, of gender is male and female. The second aspect is that God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. Or more specifically, male and female, and in Genesis chapter two, verse eighteen, it says God's word tells us very clearly that that when He created Adam, right, that there was not a helper that was that was um, suitable for him. And you jump down to verse twenty, and it tells us that that God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam, and God took one of the ribs out of Adam, and fashioned formed a woman, and. God said, you know, Adam said of this creation, this this woman that God had created, that you're, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. And we also know with that that, that they became one flesh, as we see in just a moment. So God performed the marriage ceremony, the sacred ceremony, this sacred covenant between, between male and female, between husband and wife and God, in the Garden of Eden. So so God's design for marriage is between one man man, and one woman, specifically male and female. Here's the third part of this, that God's design for sexual relations is within the context of marriage, specifically between husband and wife. In verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, it says that for man will leave his father and mother and he will cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now it does speak of marital oneness. Right? Spiritually, in the sense of, of having this relationship with one another, but, but it is specifically speaking of uh, and explicitly speaking of this physical sexual relationship between a husband and wife, a male and a female. And so God's design for sexual relations is within the context of marriage, specifically between husband and wife. Here's the fourth aspect of, of God's design and, and his order regarding sexuality and gender is that God's called a, a biblical sexual ethic, doesn't limit pleasure, but brings with it a freedom that is fully pleasing. I know there are some who think that, I think it was Josh McDowell that said this years and years ago, was that is that God is not some cosmic killjoy. You know, God's not up in heaven trying to figure out or, or, or plan up how we, he can make us miserable and how he can how he can do something that's going to cause us not to have any fun. That's not God. The world would like to make us think that that's who God is, but that's not God at all. As a matter of fact, in the the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, um, when he placed Adam there, he told Adam specifically, he said, I've given you everything in the garden. You knock yourself out, go have fun, roam around the garden, explore it, have an adventure, and you can you can eat of the trees, you can enjoy all that I've created for you, but there's only one thing you can't do. The one thing you can't do is eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. That's, all. That's the only thing you can't do. And the reason why is because God said in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. So God was trying to protect Adam from going against what his created order, what God's created order and design was for him and what would be for mankind. You see, God wasn't trying to be a killjoy for Adam. He was trying to protect Adam. And he wanted Adam to experience the full freedom for which Adam was created, which we were created. But we know the rest of the story, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Satan tempts them, just like he does today, tempting us to try to get us to think that God is trying to limit our freedom. When in actuality God is wanting to us to experience the fullness of his freedom and the full pleasure of his freedom. So God sets boundaries and the reality is that we can we can experience his life in the midst of the boundaries he set and its full life is what Jesus said. It's when we go outside the, of the boundaries of of God that we find ourselves experiencing a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of woundedness, destruction. You know, I remember one time when I was in Ecuador and went on a mountain road or we on a bus, and in, in Ecuador, <clears throat> there, are, there are dirt roads that go up the mountainside, and there aren't guardrails. I mean, in most places that I remember, specifically this place, there were no guardrails, and, and I was sitting there on a window seat, and... I, I couldn't look out the window. Now, I'm pretty much a thrill seeker, but I wasn't that much of a thrill seeker um, and just like an adrenaline junkie. Because when I looked out the window, there was nothing there. It was like you would go off of the mountain if you went off that road. And I thought for sure that, that the wheels on that side of the bus, the side I was sitting on, on the edge of the mountain road, I, it, I, I thought for sure they must have been hanging off the road, um, which would have not ended well, by the way. So when, we, when you try to live outside the boundaries of God, here's what I want to get with that, that you very easily go off rails and find yourself experiencing pain and disappointment and heartache and destruction. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to have happen. He wants us to live outside the boundaries of God. And whenever we go against God's created order and his design and a biblical sexual ethic, we always experience destruction in some way. And I really think that if you would be honest with God and and, and honest with yourself, that every time you've stepped outside of the boundaries of God, I think you would have to admit you've experienced woundedness, hurt, and pain. And that's not what God intended for us. So God calls us to a biblical sexual ethic that doesn't limit pleasure, but it brings with it a freedom that's fully pleasing. So here's the implication of this, that we experience the goodness of God when we live according to His design. Not when we go against it, and so this whole idea that God has created, He His order, His created order and design regarding sexuality and gender is very good. Here's the Here's the second thing, is that is that rebellion against God's created order and design regarding sexuality and gender is sin. There's There's no two ways about it, and I don't know we, we don't like to talk about sin much today, right? Because it it means that we have to recognize our own brokenness, um, and that we're accountable to God. But rebellion against God's created order and design regarding sexuality and gender is sin. I mean, God's word's not ambiguous when it comes to sin, um, sexual sin, or any other sin for that matter. So our casual approach towards sin is not due to God's lack of clarity regarding sin, but rather our callous attitude about sin. So so sometimes we're just callous about it. But listen to what what... Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the believers in Corinth. And this city of Corinth is not any different than the city of Ephesus. Here's what he says. He's writing to believers, and it's important that you know this. He's writing to believers in Corinth. He said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. In other words, Paul's saying you guys were in that category. You guys were in that group and there was no hope. Such were some of you, but that word were is, is incredibly important. He's speaking past tense. He says, you've been changed. Something happened. And here's what he says. But you were washed. Washed by what? Washed by the blood of Christ. Christ has freed you from sin because you turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. And so you were washed. And he says you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what he's saying is this, that when you turn from sin and you turn to Jesus Christ to to save you, to forgive you of your sin, you were washed and you were sanctified. That means you were set apart. That word sanctified means you were set apart by God and for God's purposes. It doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. It means that Jesus is better. And when you trust Jesus as Savior with your life and experience the forgiveness of his sin, he makes us better. He sets us aside to sanctify us for things that are good, things that are right, things that, that are not destructive. And he said, and you were justified, just as if you'd never sinned. In other words, we were fully forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he goes on to say that the body, our physical body, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So flee from sexual immorality. The word flee is a very strong word in the Greek language. It means to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Whenever you're confronted with temptation, the enemy brings your way, whether it be pornography, um, having casual sex, um, whatever that sin may be. That's sexual immorality. Paul says, flee from it, because every other sin, he goes on to say, is a person commits, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In other words, the Spirit of God resides in us as believers in Christ. And you're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now I want to I want to touch on this last statement he makes, these last couple of, of, of sentences that he says. He says, You're not your own. Well, it, I mean, talk about something that is a complete countercultural statement. I mean, think about the the, the mantra we hear now today my body, my choice. Of course, except when it comes to the vaccine, then it's the government's, right? Government, Your body is the government's, and it's their choice. But that's for another podcast. But you've heard the statement, my body, my choice, specifically as it relates to um, the, the pro-abortion movement, right? Those, those who don't believe um, in, 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 the, in pro-life in the sense of being for pre-born children um, actually being born. You hear this term, my body, my choice. And the sad thing is, we hear this being echoed by those who profess to be followers of Christ. Yet here in the text, Paul's talking to us as believers, and he says, you're not your own. None of, nothing about us is our own. I mean, ask yourself this question, did you create your body? Absolutely not right the creator god created us we saw that in genesis just read that a few moments ago that we've been created in the image of god we're all image bearers of god and so as a result of this we're not our own this we, we don't we don't get to do whatever we want to our to in our own lives and expect not to be any consequences when we sin against god and here's why we're not our own is because if you're a follower of jesus we have been bought with a price and that price was not cheap. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we might be saved, so that we might be rescued from sin and, and, and sin's curse, which is death, and the destruction that comes with living a life of sin. And so he says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And, and we're not, it's not like we're, some, like we're God's possession in the sense of like just some kind of object. No, we're, we're the object of his affection, of his love. That, that he says, I have adopted you as sons and daughters. And then so Paul summarizes it by saying, so glorify God in your body. Because when we begin to realize we've been bought with a price and, and that Christ has purchased us, that he's redeemed us, he has saved us from sin and sin's consequence, sin's curse, which is death, separation from God, man, we should want to glorify God in our body. Paul goes on to write... Um, to the Christians in Rome. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Now some will take this 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 last part of this of this passage and say well there you go I'm, we're under grace. so if I sin I'm under grace. it's no big deal. I can live however I want to and just claim grace. That is a very distorted view of the doctrine of grace. That's not grace. Grace is understanding how how much an offense our sin is to a holy God. Grace is when you realize that you're a sinner, and that you don't deserve the salvation that God's given us in Christ or the forgiveness that he extends to us in Christ, and yet he forgives us when we ask him, when we, when we seek him, when we turn from our sin and turn to him for the forgiveness of sin. He, he forgives us. He saves us because of his grace. When we come to realize how broken we are without Jesus, when we begin to realize the depth and the depravity of our sin, and yet Jesus reaches down to rescue us, our response should be to live lives of holiness, live lives of righteousness, because we've experienced the grace of Jesus. And to know that when we do fall and we realize that and we confess it and we ask God to forgive us for our sin, that we understand the, the depth of his grace that frees us, that forgives us. But grace is never to be abused, never. So when we rebel against God, in his created order and design regarding sexuality and gender, it's sin. So here's the implication. We must let God's word define what sin is and what sin is not. We don't define that. We don't define what sin is. We must let God define his word, define what sin is and what it's not. Here's the third thing, that Jesus affirms God's created order and design regarding gender and sexuality. I hear this all the time in the world. That I've heard people say this. Maybe you've heard this as well. I'm not really into the Old Testament much. I'm not into all that stuff. I'm just into Jesus. Well, let me let me just say this to you. Jesus was very much into the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if we're going to talk about um, a Bible, if, if we're going to say that Jesus had a Bible, okay, you understand what I'm saying here, his Bible would have been the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. He was always quoting the Law. Jesus did not undermine the Law. He didn't dismiss the Law. If, if anything, He fulfilled the Law, is what Scripture says. And the reason, the only reason he was able to be um, an acceptable sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world is because Jesus fully kept the law perfectly, which is why he was the unblemished Lamb of God who was able to be sacrificed, shed his blood for the sins of all the world so that we might be saved. It required that kind of sacrifice. So Jesus affirms God's created order and design regarding gender and sexuality. We see that in the Gospel of Matthew specifically. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, that he, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there he is affirming gender. And he goes on and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. So in this text, in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 19, Jesus is affirming God's created order and his design regarding sexuality and gender. So, so the Old Testament's not outdated. It's not irrelevant. Um, Jesus, again, he affirmed the law. Now, I know some people would say, "Well, Jesus didn't speak against uh, homosexuality," and you know there are a lot of things, by the way, that Jesus did not mention in Scripture. I mean, he didn't he didn't talk about animal cruelty. He didn't talk about. I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that Jesus didn't speak of that we know are are not right for us to do and pursue and live in, based upon. All of Scripture, and we have to take the whole counsel of Scripture, not just pieces of Scripture or those things that aren't specifically mentioned in Scripture and say, well, because it wasn't specifically mentioned by Jesus, then therefore it must be okay. No, when we look at God's Word, there are principles that, he's, that God's Word's given us that Jesus actually validates and speaks of that we should keep. So Jesus affirms God's created order and design regarding gender and sexuality. And here's, here's the last thing I want to share with you about how, how the Bible speaks to this, that the gospel calls us to die to self in order to experience all the fullness of life found only in Jesus. Then that's not a popular thing to say either, right? We want to live and do what we like, what what feels great to us, what, what's going to give us pleasure, what we love to do. But when you come to faith in Christ, you are, you are coming to Him, laying down everything that you're willing to deny yourself. Or you're willing to die to self. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said that when 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 the Lord calls us, He bids us to come and die. Now Jesus even said that. Jesus is the one who said it in Luke chapter nine. He said, "If anyone would come after Me," in other words, if you're going to say that you follow Jesus, Jesus said, "Let him deny himself." That means there, there are certain things, desires you may have that you're going to have to be willing to deny. So just because you have a desire doesn't make it right. The enemy is great at distorting desires that God gives us. For example, sexual desire is good within the right context, within a biblical sexual ethic. But whenever that desire goes outside the boundaries of God, like I talked about earlier, then what ends up happening is we find ourselves destroyed in a lot of ways, wounded, hurt, um, experiencing pain. And so, so when we deny, when we don't deny ourselves, what we're doing is we're living according to our own desires, our own dreams, right? What we want to do. Now, I know, I know some would say, you know, in this argument that, well, this is how I was born. I was born this way. I was born with with these desires. I was born with with. Uh, I was preconditioned um, to experience this. Um, or, um, yeah, and 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 so, I should be able to do that. Well. The problem with that is this, is that denying self means regardless of what desires you may have, we all were born in sin, so we're going to have distorted desires. We have to submit those to Christ, the authority of Christ, and live according to His ways. That's what it means to deny self. We can't just make the excuse that, well, these desires are in me. This is how I was born. Therefore, I should be able to live that way. Well, that's not what God's Word says. So He goes on and says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Right? there's going to be suffering that comes with living for Christ there just is so you know I mean I hear people say all the time that that um, certain things are their crosses to bear right well you know I just this this job I have and the people I work with it's just my cross to bear well I think that's missing the point a little bit um, the, probably the, the better understanding of scripture is is that when we deny ourselves and we take up his cross that means when we follow Jesus we're going to experience suffering for for when we live righteously when we do that which is right, we're going to experience criticism. We're going to be ridiculed. We're going to suffer that, just like Jesus did. Because taking up the cross, um, it means embracing the same death that Jesus experienced in order to follow him. And it's worth it, as we're going to see in just a second. So he goes on and says, for whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I mean, it's such a paradox, right? That you may, in in thinking that you're living right now by doing what you want to do and not denying yourself, not denying your flesh, and living however you want to, you may think that you're gaining the world, but Jesus says that may be what you think you're doing, but the reality is you're losing your life. You're losing it. But when you're willing to lay it down and follow me, that's when you really experience life and living. And then he asks this question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses it or forfeits himself? What if you, what if you, you know, Gain everything you want in fulfilling your fleshly desires, money, career, relationships. I mean, you name it. What if you gained the whole world, all that everybody says you need to gain, and yet at the end of it, you realize you've lost everything? It's kind of like, what if you're climbing the ladder, right, and you're wanting to get to the top and, and uh, of, of the wall, so to speak, and you realize at the end of your life, that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. That's how some people are living their life right now. And God says very clearly that that you're not going to profit anything if you're following after the world. You may gain the world, but you'll lose your soul. Jesus goes on to say, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him that will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I just I don't want the, the Father, I don't want him, I don't want the Son of God, I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. When He comes back, I want to have been, in, I want to have lived in a way that was pleasing to Him in obedience. So here's the implication: that turning to Jesus means turning away from lesser things. There's a a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you may know who that is. She was a, a former uh, professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian activist uh, involved in a lesbian relationship, uh, and she gave her life to Christ years ago. Um, and follow, and she wrote something about her conversion to Christ and what it means to die to sin and self. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read just an excerpt um, that she wrote. Really, it was an article that she wrote in response to Jen Hatmaker, saying that that LGBTQ relationships, that those homosexual gay relationships, um, are holy. That God will bless those relationships, and so. Um, Rosaria Butterfield responded to Jen Hatmaker with much grace, much love, and this is an excerpt from that response to um, Jen Hatmaker. She says, To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999? Or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion, and she's speaking about converting to Christ, that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin natures deceive us. Sin's deception isn't just, quote, out there, end quote. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. How I feel does not tell me who I am. Only God can tell me who I am because He made me and takes care of me. He tells me that we're all born as male and female image bearers with souls that will last forever and gendered bodies that will either suffer eternally in hell or be glorified in the new Jerusalem. Genesis 1.27 tells me that there are ethical consequences and boundaries to being born male and female. When I say this previous sentence on college campuses, even ones that claim to be Christian, The student protesters come out in the dozens. I'm told that declaring the ethical responsibilities of being born male and female is now hate speech. Calling God's sexual ethic hate speech does Satan's bidding. This is Orwellian nonsense or worse. I only know who I really am when the Bible becomes my lens for self-reflection and when the blood of Christ so powerfully pumps my heart whole that I can deny myself, take up the cross, and follow him. There is no goodwill between the cross and the unconverted person. The cross is ruthless. To take up your cross means that you're going to die. As A.W. Tozer has said, to carry a cross means you're walking away and you're never coming back. The cross symbolizes what it means to die to self. We die so that we can be born again in and through Jesus by repenting of our sin, even the unchosen ones, and putting our faith in Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. The supernatural power that comes with being born again means that where I once had a single desire, one that says if it feels good, it must be who I really am, I now have twin desires at war within me. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Genesis five seventeen. I mean Galatians five seventeen. Then she closes with this And this war doesn't end until glory. Victory over sin means we have Christ's company in the battle, not that we're lobotomized or not that we check our brains at the door. She says, My choice sins, know my name and address, and the same is true for you. When we choose to follow Jesus, we're choosing to die to self, to deny ourselves, and follow him. It's not always easy, but that's what Christ calls us to, and it's best. You know, it could be that right now you're you're living in sexual sin maybe you're finding yourself in bondage to pornography maybe you're involved you're engaged in a same-sex relationship or in any sexual relationship outside of marriage casual sex and maybe other sexual issues and the enemy's trying to convince you that there's nothing wrong with your sin or you'll never be able to conquer your sin. Maybe the enemy's trying to whisper in your ear that, that it'll cost you too much to give up your sin, but here's the truth, that the reward and blessing that we gain in following Jesus is always far greater than the loss of what we leave behind to follow him. Now, that may not feel as though it's true, but it's absolutely true. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or, or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying this. He says that you're gonna you're gonna leave certain things when you follow him. You will. It may be relationships, maybe walking away again from that sexual sin that has gripped your heart and is destroying your life. And when you turn away from that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, he said that we're going to receive a hundredfold now in this life, but also in eternity to come. In other words, we're going to experience his blessings of walking in righteousness and obedience to Christ. So again, the reward and blessing we gain in following Jesus is always far greater than the loss of what we leave behind to follow him. So in closing, how, how do we counter the the enemy's tactic, his tactics to deceive us? Right, because he's he's trying, he's trying hard. He's again perverted thinking, he's distorted what God says is good. So how do we counter the enemy's tactics uh, to deceive us? Well, first of all, I'd say search out the Word of God. Don't listen to your friends or or uh, anybody else for that matter. You search out God's Word. What does God's Word say about? his created order, and his design for sexuality and gender. Search out the word of God and let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Search it out. Just test God and see what his word says. The second thing I say is don't dismiss the spirit's conviction of sin. I, I, I believe that, that with all my heart that God's spirit convicts us of sin. God's word says in John sixteen eight. Jesus said this, that when he comes, speaking of the spirit, the spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit not only guides us into all truth, but He convicts us of sin. So what I want to encourage you is don't dismiss the Spirit's conviction of sin. And We live in, in a culture where people love to play the card where they say, hey, don't judge me. Stop judging me. And the reality is it's not that other people are judging you necessarily, although that does happen. It could very well be that the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin. And it's very easy to play that off or dismiss it as man's judgment and not the Spirit's conviction. And what I want to say to you is this, is that when God convicts us of sin, that is His love on display for you and for me, because He loves us too much to let our sin go unchecked. Paul says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I can tell you, having experienced God's discipline and His kindness in that way, um, man, it was it was gracious as hard as it was it was gracious don't dismiss the spirit the spirit's conviction of sin here's the third thing that regardless if you're living in sexual sin you're struggling with some of these relationships or if you have a family member or friend a loved one who's struggling with this i want to say this to all of us be open to having honest conversations don't just check out of conversations don't 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 just be dismissive or vitriolic but be willing to have open honest conversations be willing to listen to someone who who loves god loves his word speaks with love and grace and truth be willing to listen to someone who loves you enough to talk to you about the truth if you are living in sin and and if you know someone who's involved and engaged in destructive relationships or they they're living lives that have missed god's created order and design um be gentle in your conversations, and I would say listen before you speak. Just listen. Seek to gain understanding. It doesn't mean you have to agree with how they're living their life, but seek to gain some understanding, and here's why. How you respond initially will set the course for future crucial conversations. It will. So be quick to hear and slow to speak, as God's Word says in the, in the book of James. Here's the last thing I would say in how we counter the enemy's tactic or tactics to deceive us is let everything we do be done with much love and grace because that's exactly how god has dealt with us in jesus you see we've all been in bondage to sin and god realized that and so he sent his son jesus who came to this into this into this world to set us free from sin and death he is the key to the chains that hold us Enslaved and in bondage to sin, and so maybe that's you today. Maybe you are in bondage to sexual sin. God has something so much better for you, for us. Right? It's His created order. His it's His design. And when we get back to how God's designed it, and it is very, very good. But as you love on people, speak to people who may be living a lifestyle that is not honoring to Christ, maybe engaged, wrapped up in uh, in, in sin sexual sins let everything you do be done with much love and grace um, because that is the essence of the gospel well I I know this was a a tough subject perhaps maybe hard to hear and maybe some of you are, are just not happy with what you've heard well my prayer is that you would seek out God's word the scriptures ask God to show you the truth be willing to listen but know this I love you enough to speak the truth to you because someone loved me enough to speak the truth to me. And I'm so thankful for that. So I hope that you have learned from this uh, podcast and I hope it's been encouraging to you. Uh, And I want to encourage you to share this with your friends on your social media platforms. If you found this helpful, if you believe this might be something that would speak into the lives of someone that you love, um, share this on your social media platforms. And I pray that God uses this, um, for His glory, and for the benefit of others. So thanks so much for joining me on this episode, and I look forward to you joining me again next time on Crossroads in Culture.